0: I will call upon you to do a service
1: for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family.
2: VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Talk show Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of The Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I'm here with my co host, Deb. And we are going to be talking about the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be doing this once a month. And tonight, we're going to do a very special wife and a very special husband, Roger Sherman. And he was the only signer of the Declaration to sign every document, all four documents. And uh, we will get into him um, as well. So his two wives. Uh, Elizabeth Hartwell, that's her maiden name, and Rebecca Scott, that's her maiden name also. But before we get into it, how are you tonight, Deb?
0: Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. The humidity has broken. It's much nicer. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that much up here on the mountains of Montana, but I'll tell you, when it is humid, you feel it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, it's it's
0: very green and very it's been very humid, and and the days have been funny because it'll start out sunny and then the, the clouds will roll in and we'll have a thunderstorm and, like, a downpour. And then it goes away and then we're sunny again. And But the humidity was getting to be, like, 1,000% here yesterday. And this morning we woke up and there was a beautiful breeze and the air had dried out. And I didn't have to water my garden all week. <laughs> It was just wonderful. Our pond said, is overflowing,
2: though. <laughs> I know. You got inundated this spring.
0: Oh, we did, yes.
2: Okay, well, I'm going to start with a history of Connecticut, because that's where Rebecca and Elizabeth and Rogers from. They're from Connecticut, and uh, Jeb has found a wonderful – what they it, do? It? There it is. <laughs> wonderful – site about Connecticut history. We really haven't gone to Connecticut at all.
1: Well, there wasn't any
2: battles there or
0: anything. It really wasn't, um, it was more the, it started out as the debate state because there were major debates between the Whigs and the Tories, and then it came into being the provisional state uh, as per Washington because they did a major job of supplying the Continental Army.
2: Right, and I did read one of that, that they, they were the major suppliers of the, um, and I forget where they said that. They actually called it something. I have to look back on my links. So, yes, we haven't been to Connecticut before, and like Deb was saying, it's because there really wasn't any major battles. What they were famous for, for the Revolutionary War, and hopefully they'll have it in this um, essay, uh, was supplying the Continental Army. So, the Dutch who were interested, this is from kindredtrails.com, the Dutch who were interested in setting up trade with the Native Americans, the Natives, were the first Europeans to explore the area that is now Connecticut. In 1614, Adrian Block was sent up the Connecticut River in search of a trading location. The Dutch set up a trading post called the House of Good Hope at present-day Hartford in 1633. Their interest was not that of settlement, but of new trade opportunities. Conversely, the English settlers of Massachusetts were primarily concerned with settlements and were soon spreading to the Connecticut area. The English colonists first began to explore the Connecticut lands in 1632, and within a year, settlers had arrived. Now, this was, this was a deal throughout all of uh, New England because of, most of it, especially in New York state, were settled by the Dutch. But they weren't sort of like they explained here. They were mostly fur traders. They wanted to be traders. They didn't really want to set up, you know, shops. And that's how the English pushed them out, right, of all the New England colonies where they were.
0: Yeah. The Dutch just wanted to um, – some stayed, but for the most part, um, they just they just wanted to come in and uh, see what they could get to bring home and and bring stuff to trade with, you know, the, the different uh, – people that were there at the time, you know. Um, like we've mentioned before, the the European uh area, um, you know, Denmark and, and, and those lands also and they they'd been around for a long time and they'd pretty much resourced out their their countries so that they had to you know, expand their horizons. And, of course, the the government was always looking for new resources and ways to get trade and money and and all that, just like any other government.
2: Well, the Dutch were more conducive to their people. It wasn't like the people of the... Deutschland was persecuting the people for religious beliefs, like That's, the English
0: were. So, yeah, the, the, and then there was the religious aspect of it, with the with the other um, Europeans that came over, uh, and the Germanic people uh, who were persecuted for having different religious beliefs.
2: Right, the Dutch people really didn't have a reason to leave oh, land.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they
2: just didn't. They liked it, and they, also they were rich back yeah. then. You know, it wasn't like a poor country like Ireland. It wasn't poor and, no. and war-torn like Germany. Germany was a complete disaster. Because what
0: um, we went to them to, to get money to fight our war, you know? <laughs> Little John Adams over and
2: talking to the Dutch,
0: trying to get yes. money.
2: They was the World Bank at the time. So it was easy for them, because we really got into this when we were talking about New York State, um, that they would just... They, they, they just left and went back home. It was, they were like,
0: okay, we're gone. <laughs> yeah. Or some stayed uh, to settle the the trading. You know, they stayed there to to build up the trading. But then, you know, they put the the Dutch would come in with their ships, and then they'd load them up and they'd go back.
2: Right. So the first English settlers came from Plymouth, Massachusetts. More colonists arrived in the spring, and the settlements continued to grow. The towns of Hartford and Wetherfield were founded soon after that. Known as the River Towns, Windsor, Hartford, and Wetherfield became the focal point of Connecticut settlement during the early 17th century and provided migrants for other Connecticut towns. Early Connecticut settlement patterns followed two distinct routes along the Connecticut River and along the coast. The first coastal town included Faybrook, New Haven, Milford, Greenwich, Fairfield, New London, and Stonington. American relations and border disputes with natives dictated the expansion of the coastal river settlements. The land north of Windsor was claimed by both Connecticut and Massachusetts, so settlers ran the risk of being caught in a border dispute, and this happened between New Jersey and New York as well. And they had to go through all this charter process. Remember we talked about that? Mhm. And they had to go back to the parliament and they had to go back to the king and the king well, I think one of them, New Jersey, the king actually just granted it to uh the the founder of New Jersey. Yeah. So most of these were settled by the Parliament. Right?
0: Yeah. And of course they right. all had they all had royal um governors and uh cabinet not cabinet but um administrators there. Right. Too. So it was really, this was, you know, pre the colonies having their own governments. They didn't yet.
2: The colonists did not have peaceful relations with the natives. Oh, thank you. We thank live south of Windsor, so settlement did not spread to there until 1646. Towns began to grow more rapidly as the natives left the area, resulting in the creation of 24 new towns between 1650 and 1720. Most of the towns were in the Connecticut River Valley and were inhabited by settlers from the towns of Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield. You know what? i got to increase this. <laughs> I
1: know.
2: It's too little. Yes, yes. Okay, so the early settlers of Connecticut were very, very homogeneous, originally migrating from the counties of southeastern, southwestern, northern, and central England. The majority of these people were farmers and servants. Small percentages were craftsmen. The population remained overwhelmingly English during the 18th century, but by 1790, Connecticut was home to a significant number of Scottish settlers. Scots were present in, in Connecticut during the early colonial period, which was reflected in the Scottish settlement of Scotland, founded near Winham in 1700. However, the majority of Scottish settlers arrived later in the 18th century. By 1790, there were over 6,000 Scots in Connecticut, which is amazing because most of the Scottish settlers, we talked about this over and over again, went down south. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. they were in the highlands.
0: Yeah, but remember, there's a hell of a lot of Scots here in Appalachia.
2: Well, yeah, there would be, right?
0: The Scots-Irish. Um, yeah, so they 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 had smaller pockets. You know, but South Carolina, they, um, I mean, the Appalachians, of course, were just like, you know, the Highlanders came there, the ones from the the mountains of Scotland and Ireland, and and South Carolina, you know, they they came there and they were loyalists, whereas, eh, they might be both, you know, they they weren't, the the Appalachian Scots-Irish didn't even want to be involved, thank you very much, they were very happy living where they were living and they didn't really want to get involved and, and in Connecticut, um, you know, there were those who were for and those who were against, so yeah, they were all different.
2: Yep. So, Connecticut during the revolution. Connecticut was home to both pro England supporters, Tories, left, loyalists, and patriots. The strong Puritan base and the colony's reliance on self government created many hostilities towards British rule. Now I'm going to stop there because I want to go to this other article about Connecticut um, that says that uh, they were, the Puritans mostly came into Connecticut, but their first form of government, and this to me is the foundation for the signers of Connecticut, this is their foundation. It was called the Fundamental Orders, and I'm going to read what they were. It's my page load. (laughs) This is from Info, Please, and it's taking forever to load. Okay. The fundamental orders in U.S. history, the basic law of the Connecticut colony from 1639 to 1662, formally adopted by representatives from the towns of Hartford, Weathersfield, and Windsor, meeting at Hartford. John Hooker, John Hayes, and Roger Ludwell were most influential in framing the document. Now, I read somewhere also when I was doing this research, Thomas Hooker, was a very famous preacher, and I don't know if you've heard of him. but he was from Massachusetts, and well, he, he lots of them. Huh? <laughs> we had lots of them. <laughs> there were yeah. Have. He was he was really influential in Massachusetts, and then he came to Connecticut, and he was really a big wig, a big time preacher that everyone listened to. Um, so these three they were the influential framing of of the document of the fundamental orders. And, and like I said, he was a preacher, so he was coming from that uh, viewpoint, from God, from Christianity, to help, you know, make this a rule of law.
0: Well, Um, he was dissatisfied with, you know, the rigidness of the, and the government of the Puritan church in Massachusetts. That's why he left. Right, that's
2: why, and I think we talked about him, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he, he... Many of them did. I mean, you have to remember, there was um, Cotton Mather and his family, and, I mean, the stern, rigid Puritans founded Massachusetts, and eventually people got a little tired of it, and they, they took off and went to other colonies, started their own little place
1: of uh, worship.
2: Yep. Okay. So, well, um, it is not the first written constitution that shaped the government, as it has been popularly called. Nor did it mark the beginning of a commonwealth democracy. Another misconception fostered by the 19th century historian, straining hard to mark the foundations of American democracy, its provisions for voting in what is now Connecticut reveal how far from democratic it actually was. However, this deficiency is no reflection on the importance of or soundness of the document. For political democracy, as we know it, it was today, virtually non-existent in the 17th century, except in such rare cases as, you know what, I gotta make this bigger too, too little. Um, let's see, da, 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 da. except in such rare cases as the Rhode Island colony under Roger Williams. Indeed, the Puritans regarded unconfined democracy as an aberration. To them, only the most substantial, respectable, and reliable Christians were concert, considered worthy to build up a community, essentially religious and design. Again, going back to, we will, to our will of to Christian nation. The fundamental Orders consisted of a preamble and 11 orders or laws. The preamble found the inhabitants of the three towns to be governed in all things by the orders that followed. And these were similar to the statute laws elsewhere in New England, differing only in that they were shaped into a brief, clear, compact frame of government. Ludlow, a lawyer, is believed chiefly responsible for the excellence of the final form. The government, or combination as Hooker called it, confirmed the system that had functioned in the three towns since 1636 and was very like the Massachusetts model. The main concern of the fundamental orders was the welfare of the community. The individual always had to give way if the needs of the community at large so required. The Charter of Connecticut in 1662 superseded and, and was largely based on the fundamental order. So that was briefly what they were. It was very Christian-oriented. It was very community-oriented. Um, my husband, yesterday on our show, read an article that these so-called expert said, we are individuals now, and that's why the country's going to hell, you know, and pretty much said that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> individuals anymore? Yes. Okay, so let me go back to Connecticut and the revolution. All right. So, uh, we were at, okay, I did the pro-England supporters and patriots and the strong Puritan base. And the colonies' reliance on self-government created many hostilities towards British rule. The people of Connecticut reacted in severe opposition to the Stamp Act, Sugar Act, and the Township Duties, all of which were taxes implemented by England on the colonies during the 1760s. There was also a strong, pro England movement in the western part of Connecticut, which was home to a large population of Anglicans, adherent to the Church of England. Loyalty in Connecticut could be viewed regionally. The strongest Loyalist contingency lied in the West. The strongest anti-British sentiment was found in the East. In 1766, the Eastern and anti-England contingency had taken over the Council, shifting the power away from the Loyalists. From this point on, Connecticut showed its support for the colonies by participating in the non-importation movement, where the colonists boycotted British goods. Further support was shown when Connecticut supported Massachusetts during the Boston Tea Party incident. Everybody supported Massachusetts during this. And actually, we have reported that there was many, many tea parties, not just the Boston one. Yes. So if you go back into the archives, you'll know that there's more than one. There was called the non-participation movement. Um, that was headed by women. I'm going to review that right now. Women started this and women also were the first manufacturers of goods in the United States, not men. After the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776, Connecticut's Tories were identified and disarmed. Over 1,000 Loyalists fled to New York to escape harsh treatment in Connecticut. Once the war began, Connecticut contributed men and provisions for the war effort. Known as the Provision State, that's what I was looking for when we were talking about this, because they really didn't have major battles, but they were the provision state. Connecticut supplied food, included corn, rye, wheat, oats, barley, flax, vegetables, and fruits from the fertile Thames River valleys. Clothing, gunpowder, and other weaponry were also among Connecticut's contributions. So Connecticut was pretty important in the war, and it's amazing to me. It's a, it's a small state, yeah, that, that they can provide all this. I mean, it's not a big state.
0: (laughs) No, it's not.
2: Connecticut was not home to prolonged military engagements, only small battles. Benedict Arnold's attack on New London in 1781 became Connecticut's most famous battle. During this attack, 80 people at Fort Griswold were killed and the town of New London was destroyed. Connecticut's Navy achieved more success than its troops, capturing over 40 British ships, good for little Connecticut. Throughout the duration of the war, Connecticut privateers who were legally sanctioned pirates captured hundreds of British ships and confiscated both men and booty in the name of war. Connecticut's Rep- representatives Roger Sherman, Oliver Ellisworth, and Sam- William Samuel Johnson were essential to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia following the war. Sherman's proposed Connecticut compromise was crucial in breaking a deadlock at the convention. Was that true? <laughs> I'm asking my husband questions He's in the room with me the com- he's, he's an expert on this stuff You yeah, know, on the pay hub. pub The hmm. Compromise set up uh, what we know today As the House of Representatives and the Senate Connecticut was the fifth state to ratify the Constitution Officially joining the Union In January of 1788 Great find, by the way,
1: Deb Yeah
2: righty. So yeah. Now we're going to move on to Roger Sherman because this article is very, very lengthy, but in between we're going to be highlighting the ladies. Because, again, if you want to explain this, there's not that much on them, unfortunately, which I was very disappointed because Roger Sherman was a very important man.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad that, uh, you know, um, that they they didn't, do more on the families but you know as, as we were discussing earlier it wasn't news that the women stayed home and took care of the the home and the farm or the plantation or the business and the children and everything around there and you know it it was the women weren't supposed to be a political creature you know that that was unladylike so they uh they did it in other ways as we've discussed with like the ladies in in pennsylvania who um who uh you know was in uh, the uh, homespun movement that went throughout the colonies um it was it in fact some some women were quite upset uh some of the older better uh well they considered themselves betters. Uh, decided, were quite upset about these women going door-to-door, um, you know, <laughs> telling of their cause. And So the, the women stayed at home, and they weren't written about except, like, you know, the other ones who did just really out-of-the-box things during the war, which many did. Um, but, you know, just like during World War II when all the women went to work, as soon as the men came home, bam, you know, back to the kitchen. So the, women had places, but they they worked around that. Okay, so we uh, we want to talk about Roger. Yes. Okay. All righty. Well, that's, that's all about Rebecca. We shall go over here and... See what we can find. Oh yes, here. Um, Okay, this is. Oh my God, this is like really long, though. Uh, But you're going to interrupt me anyway, so okay.
2: But yeah, I am, and and it's really important
1: because he was very. He
0: was amazing, and and he's like they 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 talk of him as the forgotten founder, and there's a reason for that, which we'll get into eventually. Um, But he was. Quite an ambitious fellow, and um, very dedicated to his religion, his God, and his uh, country. Country, but all you know, his his duty of being a servant. Yes. Yes. To his Country. Yes. yes.
1: Okay. And you know,
2: she had to be very strong to be there with him through all of it too. Mm-hmm. And we'll get and we'll get into that as well. Yeah. A little bit that they have on her. It kind of is telling. We can elaborate on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: she was, she was um, a very wonderful woman also. Okay, Roger Sherman was a native of Newton, Massachusetts, where he was born on the 19th of April, 1721. His as- ancestors were from Dedham in England once they removed to America about the year 1635 and settled at Waterton in the same state. Now this is from um, this is from ColonialHall.com. If you want to go over there, they have all the the, the signers and and stuff about the uh, the men and then their their wives. And this is you know where we're finding who they were because they certainly don't talk about them very much. Okay. The father of Mr. Sherman, whose name was William, was a respectable farmer, but from his moderate circumstances was unable to give his son the advantages of an education beyond those which were furnished by a parochial school. He was early apprentice to a shoemaker, which occupation he followed for some time after he was 22 years of age. Uh, it is recorded of him, however, that by, that by early events an uncommon thirst for knowledge, and was wont, even while at work on his seat, to have a book open before him, upon which he would employ every moment, not necessarily devoted to the duties of his calling. The father of Mr. Sherman died in the year 1741, leaving his family, which was quite numerous in circumstances of, independ- of dependence. The care of the family devolved upon Roger, his older brother having some time before removed to New Milford in Connecticut. This was a serious charge for a young man only 19 years of age, yet with great kindness and cheerfulness did he engage in the duties which devolved upon him. Towards his mother, whose life was protracted to a great age, he continued to manifest the tenderest affection and assisted two of his younger brothers to obtain a liberal education. These, afterwards, became clergymen of some distinction in Connecticut. It has already been observed that an older brother had established himself in New Milford, Connecticut. In 1743, it was judged expedient for the family also to remove to that place. Accordingly, having disposed of their small farm, they became residents of New Milford in June of that year. That, this journey was performed by young Roger on foot with his tools on his back. At New Milford, he commenced business as a shoemaker, but not long after he relinquished his trade, having entered into partnership with his older brother in the more agreeable occupation of a country merchant.
2: Did you say where this was from?
0: Yes, from Colonial Hall.
2: No, I wanted you to read from Women's History Blog.
0: Well, that's all about Rebecca.
2: No, that's about him. That was the one that's going to say how much she was in his life. This one doesn't. Oh,
0: okay, okay, all right, it starts off with her, and then it right, bo- but
2: then it goes right into him,
0: all right, okay, let's start over again here, but let's, um, yeah. okay, you did
2: that, look, look at the article, you did where he was
1: born,
0: yeah, Roger under his wing, okay. yeah, okay, Fine. all right, Roger, yeah, was blessed with an act of thirst of Oh, he was uh, first cousin, twice removed of Eli Whitney, inventor of the cotton gin, who we did, but it was designed by a woman.
2: Remember? Right, when? and I was really surprised that he was, uh, he was, like, second cousin to Eli Whitney. Well,
0: you know, if you look at the lineage of the founding fathers, you know, it, they're all related somehow yep. to somebody, you know. So. And
2: it's true. Yeah. We're finding that out.
0: Yes, okay, so let's go down to where he was. Um, now, yes. you just you, you okay. put that in. He moved he his money and siblings to New Milford, Connecticut, where an older brother was living. For a time, Roger continued to farm and make shoes. Then, in partnership with his brother, he opened the to town's first store and rapidly became one of the town's leading citizens. He also used his mathematical skills and studied to become a surveyor. In 1745, he was appointed surveyor of New Haven County, Connecticut. A lot of surveyors um, at this time because they had to, you know, they were having border disputes and everything.
1: <coughs>
0: Excuse me. During you that, know,
1: huh?
2: Well, so I'm going to interrupt. I'd like I'm going to interrupt. You know that. It's amazing to me how free we were back then. He, he was very poor, okay, but he had somebody help him educate himself. He didn't have to go to college. And he could pursue anything he wanted to be without having regulation, without having to have a license. I mean, we have just, we're like bound up. Oh,
0: yeah. That's it's, how it was. It, you couldn't do half the, well, three-quarters of the things that, that they did um, because the federal government is, is you know, just wraps you up in red tape. It's it's disgusting. As a business owner, I I know for sure.
2: Okay, let's see. I mean, let's, let's go really briefly go to, into this. Like I said, he was a poor farmer. Then he was a shoemaker. Then he learned mathematics and science and literature and philosophy. Then he became a surveyor. You know, you see what I'm getting at? It's, like, amazing. Yes,
0: and, and the thing was, it wasn't spoon-fed to him either. And in the schools that they had back in those days, if you were lucky enough to go to a school... Um, you know, beyond just the basics uh, that they had for kids. You know, you you really, they put you to work. It wasn't just the, and you didn't have mother calling up and and bemoaning the fact that your child didn't get an A, you know. You you wouldn't dare. Um, You earned it back then, and if you didn't get an A, you didn't get an A. There was no curve, you know. Because the the, it, the government didn't... It was the local people that set up the, the schools. It wasn't run by the federal government. They, You know, they did take from... Well, depending on which uh, country they came from, you know, like the
1: Quakers were
0: very education-oriented for both boys and the girls. Um, the uh, Puritans believed in hard work before education, but they also believed very highly in education. But you'd better work. You know, you didn't just sit with your hands idle. What they would think of video games is probably couldn't be printed. Um,
1: Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Okay. So, yeah, we're being regulated to death. Small Entrepreneurs today have much less opportunities to do well can you imagine um uh oh the apple guys walsnick and uh uh job 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 steve jobs job um steve jobs who invented the computer basically in their garage you know can you imagine them doing that now for one thing, OSHA would be after him. I'm so Oh, do you have toxic something? Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous what you have to go through. and You have to get a permit for this, a permit for that, a license for this, or be certified through this uh, government. Yeah, it's just, and God help you if you want to try to invent something and mass market it, manufacture it. You have to okay. Move.
2: Well, let's go on with him. Okay. Let's
0: see. Okay. During all right, he was oh, so he was he was appointed surveyor of New Haven County, Connecticut, and served in this capacity until 1758. During that time, he bought a considerable amount of land. Oh, you could do that too, and became active in the affairs of New Milford, serving as juryman, town clerk, church deacon, school committee man and agent to the Assembly of Town Business. Gee. Although he had no formal legal training, Sherman was urged to read for the bar by a local lawyer, and he was accepted at the Bar of Litchfield, Connecticut, in 1754. He was elected to represent New Milford in the Connecticut General Assembly from 1755 to 1758 and from 1760 to 1761. Sherman also began providing astronomical yeah, I said that right. Calculations for almanacs in 1748. Since New Milford had no newspaper and reading material was hard to come by, Sherman wrote and published a popular almanac on his own from 1750 to 1761. This goes just goes to show you how much TV and, and the Internet take up of our time. By the age of 40... He had become a very successful landowner and businessman while integrating himself into the social and political fabric of New England. In 1761, Sherman abandoned his law practice and moved to New Haven, Connecticut. And, you know, he had a law practice, and he wasn't like $250,000 in debt either for his schooling. He moved to New Haven, Connecticut, which was his home until his death. There he managed two stores, one that catered to Yale students and another in nearby Wallingford. He also became a friend and benefactor of Yale College and served as its treasurer from 1765 to 1776 and was later awarded an honorary Master of Arts degree.
2: Okay, okay now, before you get into Roger Sherman marrying Rebecca... Right, You have to go
1: to... To Elizabeth.
0: Elizabeth. And Elizabeth Hartwell Sherman. Okay, now Elizabeth Hartwell was the daughter of Deacon Joseph Hartwell of Stoughton, Mass., and was married to Roger Sherman in 1749 and went to live with him in New Milford, Connecticut, where he held the office of county surveyor for New Haven County. Uh, Roger Sherman was 28 years old at the time. Six years before, he had removed from Stoughton to New Milford with his widowed mother and her little family and worked at his calling as Shoemaker. Uh, okay, we already talked about that. Okay, in 1745, he began land surveying, and three years before his marriage, we find him making the yearly calculations of an almanac Yeah, that was published in New York. We know little about Elizabeth Hartwell Sherman beyond the fact that she became the mother of seven children and that she died in 1760 highly respected by all who knew her for her gentle nature and Christian character at the time of her death her husband was serving his fifth year as member of assembly and was studying law and their children were John William Isaac Chloe Oliver Chloe and Elizabeth Chloe the first and Oliver died in infancy and this is from Wives of the Signers, the women behind the Declaration of Independence by Harry Clinton Green and Mary Walcott Green. Um, and, and I tried to get the book, but it's not in e-book form, so I, I couldn't get it in time.
2: Right. And that, you know, I'm just amazed at how many e-books you find anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. It's great. I love it. Okay, so now did they... Now, I wasn't sure if you had said that she had eight children.
0: Yes, seven. Okay. Yeah, and two right. di- two died in infancy. Okay. Yes.
2: All right. So now, so he, so she dies. Okay. Yes. And yes. then I, then he's going to meet his next wife, which is Rebecca. Yes. So I'm going to get in a little bit of Rebecca right now.
0: Okay. Good.
2: All right. Rebecca Prescott Sherman, the gifted woman who became the second wife of Roger Sherman, the patriot and the signer of the Declaration of Independence, was born in Salem, the first child of Benjamin Prescott and Rebecca Nignol Prescott. Of her early life, there is little to tell. She came of a long line of distinguished men and women and was a highly cultured and beautiful girl of great spirit. Her story is thus told in the words of a gifted descendant, Catherine Prescott Bennett, who in a recent number of the Journal of American History, quoting a niece of Rebecca Prescott Sherman, writes, She was born in Salem, and nothing in particular happened to her until she was about 17. Then something very peculiar indeed happened. You know that her aunt had married Reverend Joshua Sherman of Woodburn, Massachusetts, and one bright morning, Aunt Rebecca started on horseback to visit her, little dreaming toward what she was writing so serenely. Roger Sherman, meanwhile, had just finished a visit to his brother, Joshua, who determined to ride a short distance towards New Haven with them. You have to realize the Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, they're all, like, right around each other. And you still had to, in, back in those days, go great distance to get to them, but they're relatively compared with other colonies. They were relatively close together. And that's what you always bring up, that everybody – Even though we didn't have modern communication, everybody was either married to somebody that they knew or cousins with somebody that they knew around this whole time. So, um, let's see. Uh, They were about to say goodbye when Aunt Rebecca's horse, with its fair rider, came galloping down the road. Rebecca was a great beauty and a fine horsewoman, and she must have ridden straight to Roger Sherman's heart. Stuff like this always makes me cry, you know? (laughs) Because people back then just loved each other so much, because we were so Christian oriented, mm-hmm. and you know a lot. And we had talked about this too. A lot of these marriages were arranged marriages, and they just worked just fine. They grew to love each other, you know. Um, let's see. Uh, For concluding to prolong his visit, he turned his horse and rode back with her. His
1: courtship
2: prospered courtship prospered, and as we know, they were married May 12, 1763, when she was 20 and he was 42
1: years old,
2: 22 years her senior. She was his second wife and entered the life of this wonderfully gifted but plain man just at the time when her beauty, grace, and wit were the greatest help in his career. Now, we talked about this off-air. Not only was she 20 years old, but he had seven children. And not one of them were hurt. And she didn't care. She fell in love with him, and she was going to take whatever was his. And she did it with grace. It is amazing to me that this 20-year-old girl would take that burden on. Well, yeah,
0: today it's, it's an amazing thought. But you have to remember, this. back then there were many second and third marriages because wives and husbands died. And... They always had children, you know, for the most part, 99% of them had children in, from the first marriage and then from the second marriage. So by the time you were the third wife, you know, <laughs> there were little children everywhere. But, you know, that was just the way it was at the time. Um, men needed a wife and and women needed a husband. And that was society's uh needs more so than you know the other women decided to stay single because they knew that you know the the uh, the more you know the the women that were prone to liking business and and commerce they would they would um stay single so they could keep their property.
2: It was different back yeah it was so now um they go in the article I'm reading about the I'm reading about Rebecca they're going into when she's uh caught up in with, with uh, the revolution and what Roger is doing so let's go back to Roger and where he is in his life after he's married Rebecca, and now he's getting into the politics of the revolution, so that's part talk the next okay. the next one, don't, don't get into the. You know how many kids they had in the name of all that. We don't. We don't need to know that.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, Okay, so. All right. He, he married her. Oh, Elizabeth died during childbirth. That's very sad. I thought that was very sad, but it happens very often. Um. Okay. Although he opposed extremism, Sherman resented the British Parliament's interference in colonial affairs.
1: <coughs>
0: Excuse me. And my allergies are just. Well, with the wind today and enlisted early in the Patriot cause he supported non-importation measures and advocated the boycott of New York merchants who did not participate in them he also he was also the leader of the New Haven Committee of Correspondence an extra legal political association that was part of a communications network among Patriot leaders in all 13 colonies which if the government gets the hands on our internet we might have to go back to anyway Meanwhile, Sherman's political career had blossomed. He held a number of colonial and state offices throughout the Revolutionary Period. He rose from Justice of the Peace in 1762 to Judge of the Court of Common Pleas in 1765 and Associate Justice of the Connecticut Superior Court from 1766 to 1789, where he was annually reappointed for 23 years. After 1766, Sherman was elected to both houses of the Connecticut General Assembly numerous times and served there until 1785. By 1772, Sherman was prosperous enough to retire from business and devote himself full-time to public office. Um, At the start of the Revolutionary War in 1775, Sherman was appointed to the Connecticut Governor's Council of Safety and served as commissary to the Connecticut troops. His experience in the General Assembly prepared him for the many legislative duties that he performed during the Revolutionary War, especially in the matters of military finance and supplies. In 1776, he worked so earnestly hard that he spoke of retirement in a letter to Governor Jonathan Trumbull. It was at this time that John Adams spoke of Sherman as an old Puritan, as honest as an angel and as firm in the cause of America. American independence as Mount Atlas and Sherman was a long time and influential member of the Continental Congress from 1774 to 1781 and again from 83 to 84 at first many delegates laughed at his homemade clothing and lack of a wig and all gentlemen wore wigs in those days Uh, But his words won him respect. He was among the first patriot leaders to deny the supremacy of the British Parliament over the colonies. And he was, in 1776, he was appointed to the Committee of Five that drafted the Declaration of Independence along with Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, and Robert Livingston. Thomas Jefferson was tasked by the other four members of the committee to write the first draft. During the following two weeks, Jefferson's evolving draft was critically reviewed by other committee of five members who suggested minor changes, and just after 17 days, the document was formally presented to the Continental Congress on Friday, June 28th.
2: Now... Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to stop you right there because I'm going to go back to my essay about a little bit of, just a little bit of what Rebecca was doing at this time. Okay? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. We've always been been a patriotic race, and this marriage brought Rebecca into still more active touch with all matters pertaining to the interests of the colonies at this stirring period. And when at last the Declaration of Independence was promulgated, you can fancy the excitement and enthusiasm of the wife of Roger Sherman, the man who had so much to do with the momentous document. When a little later George Washington designed and ordered the new flag to be made by Betsy Ross, nothing would satisfy Rebecca but to go and see it in the works. And there she had the privilege of sewing some of the stars on the very first flag of a young nation. Perhaps because of this experience, she was chosen and requested to make the first flag ever made in the state of Connecticut, which she did, assisted by Mr. Mrs. Wooster. Now, I tried to find, and Deb tried to find anything about this. I mean, we just, and even in, even in her books, she was looking. We could not find anything about her involvement with Betsy Ross, but brings again how intertwined everybody was back then and how patriotic she was how proud she was of her husband and she's doing all this while raising seven kids
0: (laughs) well she probably had a few of her own by now
2: well yeah and you know i don't know well okay um it's gonna i think it's gonna come up in your essay
0: okay because you have to realize the reason this is the seems so scattered is because we had to go to several sites to put this all together, just like our last one. Because you know, we we you you put in Rebecca Pres, Prescott Sherman into the the search engine, and I mean, I have a st- you should see my desk, stacks of books, and I couldn't find her. Um, maybe in a, a couple of books that I have tucked away right now. But, I mean, we have to really go to a lot of sites, you know, a little bit of, of it here, a little bit of it there. You know, like I said, I couldn't couldn't get the book in time, um, and, you know, it not being an e-book. So. so you'll have to excuse us as we seem to be stumbling around. It's just like I have, again... Six windows open, so this is what this is
2: what we have to do. Um, right, and, and I did find what you were talking about, so let me get back into Rebecca again. I just kay. found it a um, little bit down on the essay. Okay. It was a saying of Roger, and this is very important too, it was a saying of Roger Sherman that he never liked to decide a perplexing question without submitting it for the opinion of some intelligent woman. And as a usual thing, Mrs. Sherman was the woman whose opinion he desired. It is said that he consulted her not only in regard to his business affairs, which were of intimate concern to both of them, but in regard to public matters as well. And he placed great reliance on her judgment. Now, he was a very plain man, okay, and he was thought-focused, right? Yes. Okay. But And she was extremely beautiful and extremely intelligent. You know, I, I just keep thinking about the people in the White House right now, and it just makes uh. me stand on end. But people do not realize that even though the so-called rights of women, like we have so much rights right now, their their role was very important back then. They had the ear of their husbands, okay? Not only that, they would have the sewing circles we talked about, Right. Right. They would talk up. They would talk amongst themselves about politics and what they thought of and opinions, and then that would translate to them bringing them springing it home. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, they were they were a force. Um, yes, yeah, they were. They were a force. That's a good that's a good way to describe them.
0: Yeah, they were uh, the the like the Abigail Adams and and um, Rebecca here and and several other. I mean, look at Mercy. Uh oh, uh uh James Otis this is Warren Warren, Warren. Yeah. Um, she wrote the history of the Revolutionary War afterwards, and she and Abigail Adams corresponded constantly. Uh, these women, like I said before, weren't allowed really. It wasn't ladylike for them to. They would never think of going into uh, the, the Continental Congress floor and saying something. But by God, their husbands knew what they thought.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So it goes on, and this, and this is very important, too, in this part. Um, so it goes on. It said, I um, uh, consulted with her. For years, Roger Sherman's connection with public affairs took him from home a great deal of his time. And to her fell the care of the family. Not only her own eight children, but of his children by his first wife. So, they have 15 children. Now, it takes a year to have a baby, right?
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) So, not only is she at his side, you know, in in the affairs that he's going through, but she's got. Since she's away so much, she's got to run the household, run the kids, make sure that they're all educated, and also be there for him when he needs her. And um, we had talked about uh, Thomas Jefferson's wife was like that, although she was very sickly, and Martha Washington. And and you have, we brought up before that, you know, when George wanted his Martha, Martha had to go, and she hated it. Right? hated traveling, yes, she did. hated traveling. Eyes she went. And, And, I mean, if, if this and Rebecca, if Roger needed her, Rebecca was there.
1: Yes.
2: On, on top of doing all of this.
1: Yeah.
2: So 15 children. My, i, I got to say something, though. Roger was very busy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well,
1: you know, love,
0: love. He, he had, yeah, Yeah. had a shirt, This guy has energy. I mean, yeah. Pe- uh, yeah, this is the thing that amazes me, that, you know, and I – when I when I was reading uh, the committees and the, the assembly and all this that he was on, and and you know that, um, I mean, she had help around the house for sure. But then I think of the women that raised 8 or 9, 10, 12 children in the wilderness, and they didn't have that much help. And they were further, you know, they weren't in towns, in villages where everybody was, you know, right next to each other, they were out, and they they still did it, and the the, the husband would either be out in the fields, or he'd be out in the forest hunting for, you know, for them to eat, so there she was, and she's taking care of, and you know, it's sun up to sun down, and even beyond, Uh, God knows how many of them went blind sewing by candlelight at night. You know, and and it's just amazing to me that people today say, I don't have enough time. Well, get off your phone, get off the Internet, and get up from the couch and go do something.
2: Okay, so before we, I'm going to read the end of this one paragraph. So, um, let's see. For years he was away and she had to take care of her eight children and then his seven children by his first wife, that she met these responsibilities with ability and good judgment was attested by the high position which the children held. It was also evident that although Rebecca Sherman bore no part in the revolution, she was a worthy companion to the only man who signed all four of the great documents. So, okay, that's good. That's for so that part. And then I've I got to, again, like you were explaining to everybody, i got to go back up into the, the rest of the essay. <laughs> but yeah. we'll go back to Roger Sherman right, right now and see what he's doing at the same time that she's doing all this.
0: Okay. Well, I have this book called Independence, The Struggle to Set America Free by John Fairling, And if you haven't read any of his books, you should. Um, it talks about the first Congress and, uh, let's see, when the, the part of the... The delegation um, and it I just want to read a couple of things here about him because this this is just so just it it just struck me as you know you look at we're in an election year now, and look what we have in front of us and and read about Sherman um he really is someone who should be taught about more um, it says uh He was an impressive figure, at least six feet tall. He towered over most of his colleagues. Despite a slender build, he was surprisingly muscular and powerful. His eyes were a sparkling bright blue-gray. Even in his 50s, he still had a full head of hair, which had not yet turned from its youthful brown to gray. Sherman wore it close cropped, and he shunned a wig, which some of his fellow congressmen insisted on wearing. Sherman's striking attributes were counterbalanced by what many saw as shortcomings. He was conspicuously, ungainly, prompting John Adams to remark that Sherman's air is the reverse of grace. There cannot be a more striking contrast to beautiful action. His movements, Adams added, were stiffness and awkwardness him itself. He, was as, he is as rigid as starched linen. A colleague from Georgia found Sherman so inelegant in his gestures and gait that he thought there was something unaccountably strange in his manner. What is more, Sherman was unpolished as a public speaker and awkward as a conversationalist. One of his fellow deputies from Connecticut was embarrassed that Sherman was part of the delegation. He is as badly calculated to impair in such a company as the Continental Congress as a chestnut burr and is for an eye stone. Adams noted that Sherman spoke often and long, but very heavily and clumsily. If a fellow Yankee was put off by Sherman's manner of speaking, it is hardly surprising that others from outside New England were repelled by it. Delegates from the middle and southern colonies were annoyed by Sherman's countrified cadence and strange New England cant. Um, he had less than sterling grammar and uh and and others were vexed by his pious Puritanism. He would not listen to off-color jokes, and once when Congress was so busy that it contemplated an unheard of Sunday session, Sherman headed off the proposed violation of the Sabbath out of regard for the commands of his, his maker. But Sherman's failings were outweighed by his striking intelligence and consummate common sense. We are so lacking that. Adams thought that Sherman possessed a clear head and sound judgment and proclaimed that he was one of the most sensible men in the world. A Southern delegate thought in his train of thinking there is something regular, deep, and comprehensive. Jefferson allegedly told an acquaintance that Sherman never said a foolish thing in his life. Sherman was never a leader in Congress, but his fellow deputies respected his diligence, industry, and pragmatism. Sherman was not absent from Congress for so much as 10 minutes between September 1774 and September 1775. He did not take a leave of absence until November 1775, and then he remained at home only half as long as did John Adams during his year-end sabbatical. Sherman's only other absence before June 1776 came in spring when Congress asked him to deliver money to the authorities in Connecticut. His fellow congressmen may have looked on Sherman as inelegant and uncultivated, but they thought him dependable and assigned him to one committee after another. He, before June 1776, he had served on panels created to deal with Indian affairs, raise shoes and clothing for the Army, Prepare instructions for the commissioners sent to Canada, and draft a statement on Lord North's hiring of foreign mercenaries. About the same time that he was chosen for the Committee of Five, Sherman was selected for the Board of War and Ordinance, a committee of overseeing affairs in the Continental Army, a panel that Congress thought was as, as important as any it ever created. Now, think of Rebecca. Rebecca is at home with all these children what what trust and respect he had for her that he could leave her just like john adams and abigail um they 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 knew these women would do their part do it well They wrote letters back and forth to each other talking about the situations that were going on and asking each other for advice and, and, you know, this is what I think, what do you think. Um, And they, they, you know, brought God into everything. Um, It it just was amazing to me when I read that. What, you know, here he was, someone who... You know, didn't follow the fashions of the day. He was well off, but he had homemade clothing, didn't buy a wig. You know, Puritans, you know, they, they were plain people, for, you know, for the most part. And um, he stood for his principles and his religion. And this this woman, Rebecca, who took on his seven, six, seven children, and then started having her own with him, and and then to take care of everything at home for him, so he could go, and and take care of what he needed to for the country. I mean, what a, it just it just um, wow, ooh, it's I really don't even have the words for for what I'm I, well you know how I see this.
2: Well, you know, the other thing that you're bringing up is because they, you described him. He was very plain-clothes. You know, he didn't wasn't fancy. He didn't even wear a wig, which is unheard of back then.
0: And he was ugly.
2: <laughs> yeah, and he was taller than anybody else, too. He was almost as tall as George Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, it's what you were talking about is mannerisms in his speech. Uh, Rebecca was extremely articulate mm-hmm. from the things that we've read about her. And she was, you know very beautiful she was very you know stately um and she just loved this man to death and she would do anything for him yes
0: yeah they they were partners in in you know business
2: and in politics and marriage families and
0: Um, their marriage absolutely yes yes Uh, a lot can be learned from these people so, let's see, toward the end of the war, Sherman was the most influential figure in Congress. Among the patriots of the American Revolution, Sherman alone signed all four documents, as you stated, that gradually assigned sovereignty to the new United States, the Continental Association of 1774, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the United States Constitution.
2: And that is correct, I just looked that up too, and because a couple of sites stated. Something else instead said the Articles of Association, and when I had said that to my husband, Brian, who was a, a scholar, a historical scholar on this point, he was like, what the heck's that? That's wrong. So I just relooked looked oh. it up, and it was the Art- Articles of Association, and they had it wrong in this uh, Rebecca Sherman, uh, what do you call it, uh, essay that you gave me. So I wasn't going to say what they said here.
0: <laughs> oh, well... Yeah, there were the Articles Association, but yeah, you know, he might have signed that too. But uh, there, no, he
2: did. But they called it in this essay. They called it the Address to the King. And oh, that's incorrect.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. Yes. Sir. right. So, toward the end of the Revolution, Sherman was perhaps the most influential. Oh, can I bring
2: something up? Can I bring something up again, too, before you go on? Notice that in that order of what he signed. The Articles of Confederation became before the Constitution. There's so many people out there that do not know that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what didn't work, and that's why they had the Constitutional Convention. Convention, right, exactly. Because they just didn't think that they could tweak it enough to make it work. The trouble with the Articles of Confederation was they had no power of taxing uh, the states, um and, and they they were very weak when it came to you know, you know having the uh the colonies to become states and be united they did not have the power that was needed for a united state. okay <clears throat> and so he was perhaps uh, the most influential and well-versed man in congress and we don't hear about him uh-huh. The tremendous amount of activity, combined with worry about the well-being of several sons in the Continental Army, I mean, he not only sacrificed his time and his his time, you know, at home, he also gave the cause several sons and is the wife of a soldier, joy, or the wife of a soldier, the mother of a soldier, you know, who who, uh, you know, is is. Oh. I mean, I, my heart goes out to him and Rebecca. Uh, this, The all began to take toll on Chairman's health. As early as 1777, he had written, I must leave Congress soon, for my Constitution will not admit of so close an application to business much longer. He did not leave, however, and fellow delegate noted that he was as cunning as the devil in managing legislation. Oh, God, wouldn't you have just loved to, to have... <laughs> gone to the, the tavern and sat and, and uh, had, you know, time with him. Oh. After the war, Sherman returned to New Haven, where he was faced with severe financial reverses, and so many were, stemming from his losses incurred during the Revolution, the collapse of some of his businesses, and the demands of a large family. Well, that the, what the signers went through... It just is is amazing when you think about it. In 1783, Sherman and Richard Law were appointed to thoroughly revise the confusing and archaic Connecticut statutes, which they accomplished with great success. In 1784, Sherman was elected mayor of New Haven, an office he held until his death. The years between 84 and 86 were relatively quiet years. His chief offices were that of Judge of the Superior Court and Mayor of New Haven. Wow, that's quiet for him. Um, in 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, which was convened to draft a constitution for the new American state, Sherman was one of the most vocal and persistent members. In James Madison's notes, he stated that Sherman made 138 speeches to the convention, his tiny state of Connecticut was in a precarious position and he apparently spared no effort in defending the rights of the smaller states. And that was a big thing during the convention. If you you know read about the convention, um, that was a very, very large part of a lot of the debates because you had the big states and you had the smaller states and Connecticut wasn't that big. During the Constitutional Convention, Roger, Sherman presented the Connecticut Compromise, a proposal that resolved the major differences between the large states and the small states on representation in the national legislature. And this was so important. Um, It it equalized the power that the states would have over each other because the larger states, they had more representatives. So they could, you know, it was... Numbers, really. It was decided that each state would have a representative based upon its population, one for every 30,000 people in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, every state was given two senators, no matter its size. Um yeah, and the his colleagues from Connecticut, Ellsworth and Sam uh, William Samuel Johnson, were so instrumental in bringing about the final settlement, that's why it's called the Connecticut Compromise. It was this compromise that helped all of the states to agree on a constitution, which is why Connecticut is called the Constitution State. And, and as I said, this was like a big bugaboo uh, amongst the delegates at the convention, as you well know, you know. Um, that really it was putting a spike in the not only at the convention but in the ratification so it was just really important that the smaller states didn't feel like they were being outnumbered by the the larger states or outpowered this guy was a marvel just a marvel and and i i just can't think how uh, how, I mean, it, it, for Rebecca to, to, I it just, oh, God, don't you wish you could read their letters to each other?
1: Yeah,
2: I really do. And I'm, I'm I wish that we had a few of them to read on air. That would have been nice. But, uh, again, through all this, she's standing with him. Yeah. And she's taking on the burdens. She's taking away the burdens of the business that he has to run because they need to eat. And, of course, back in the day, not like today, he was very unusual that he was a career servant. Um, Most just wanted to go back home and farm or go to the plantations. I mean, Martha and George couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we want. They weren't career politicians, but he had decided that his country was very important. So they had to eat. And, again, they didn't get paid all these billions of dollars that these people get paid. Do you know that um, I was listening, and this is a little bit of a side on history, but not really. Do you know that the people that sit on the Supreme Court are billionaires? Yeah. I was shocked. Michael Savage read out loud on his radio show how much money they make, not, not getting paid by us necessarily, but in no. their own endeavors. In their own endeavors. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And. Yes. That this if is that idiot, that idiot that Obama was going to appoint. He's a millionaire.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and as are several of our congressmen. And you wonder how they can become, you know, millionaires a hundred times over. What they get? They, what do they get? A hundred and forty thousand? Is it a year for a being a year?
2: Something like that. We, yeah. Wait, I'd love to get that a year. Good <laughs> well, living like a king.
0: Inside trading
2: well, see what what my point was with Roger Sherman. She was taking the burden away from him because they still had to eat. They didn't get paid hardly anything. No, they didn't, they didn't. Anything
0: at all. Yeah, it wasn't. You didn't make your your living. Um, you know, it was like don't give up your day job because this exactly. is. You know.
2: <laughs> exactly. They all had, you know, they went home.
1: Right, they, they did. They had their own life.
2: Yes. You know, and he was one of the few exceptions that didn't go home as frequently, and he really was a public servant. And in all the essays I've read, that's what they called him, a well, career public was servant. on committees.
0: You know, he was on every freaking committee. And I mean, my God, when you read his resume, you know, he was a judge. He was, or, I mean, a, a jurist something, what was he, uh, he was something to do with that, the court, I mean, he was a lawyer, he was a, um, he was on the Committee of Correspondence, and then he took over supplying the freaking Connecticut part of the Continental Army, which, you know, if you read Nathaniel Green's um, books and talks about his time as quartermaster, eh, that's hard work, and and he he was very busy, as was she, you know. just keeping track. I mean, God, she must have had to have a count-off every two hours, see if they were all there. You know? and of course, the older boys, they left for the war. But, um, you know, there she was pregnant. Ugh. You
2: know, and... And, and, she, and she was a lot younger than him also. I mean, that's what it good. It's amazing to me, again, you've sorted it out, how much energy this man has? Yes. I mean, my God. And that's the
0: thing. That's the thing. That's like uh, one of the generals, and I wish I could remember his name right now. Um, Daniel Morgan. Daniel Morgan. Poor guy had rheumatism so bad that he finally had to leave the war. He was already in his seventies, you know. And and he, but he, he, he. It was finally to where he couldn't ride a horse. Anymore, but my God, you know he was he was old and he had rheumatism really bad, and but he he you know ignored it as long as he could until he couldn't ride a horse and and Ben Franklin was carried in to the the convention because yeah. he couldn't walk. He was in his seventies, so these people, oh. Yeah, it's just amazing.
2: Okay, well, before you go on um, reading about Tim, I want to get back to the little thing about her and... Um, It'll be a good time to uh, to get back to Rebecca. Right. Okay, so this is just one of the incidents in her life with... Um, and we're going to briefly talk about the cabinet ladies as well. Um, oh, goodness. I clicked on the wrong thing. Okay, here we go. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: let's see. Uh, a short story came to Uncle Roger's ears, which it moved him to tell to Rebecca's, to Rebecca's consternation. When independence was declared, she was only 34 years old, and the lovely girl had developed into what George Washington considered the most beautiful of what we now call cabinet ladies. At a dinner given by General Washington to the political leaders and their wives, he took Rebecca out, thus making her the guest of honor. Madam Hancock was much piqued and afterward said to someone that she was entitled to that distinction. Wow, this is
0: Hancock. Ah. Ah.
2: A rumor of her displeasure came to the ear of George Washington, and to have his actions criticized was not at all to his liking. He drew himself up to his full height and sternly said, whatever may be Mrs. Hancock's sentiment, In the matter, I had the honor of escorting to dinner the handsomest lady in the room. And we talked about George. He was pretty soft-spoken, but if he got really upset, you knew it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he he tried. You know, he, he tried, but he did have a temper, and he didn't like to be criticized. Especially if it wasn't something that he needed to be criticized about.
2: Right. So if Mrs. Hancock had heard of this, I do not think it would have tended to restore her tranquillity. I remember, and now this is the niece. I remember Aunt Rebecca coming into the room just as Uncle Roger, who talking about her Uncle Roger Sherman, was finishing the story and exclaiming, half laughing, half vexed, "Oh, Roger, why will you tell the child such nonsense?" Then turning to me, she said, "I always remember that handsome is as handsome does. Well." Roger retorted gallantly. You looked handsome and acted handsome too, Rebecca. So I'm making an example of you. Surely you cannot find fault with that.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was so cute. I know. I know. And, and well, and yes, the Hancocks, of course, were quite egotistical and uh, John. Well, so you, you think? Yeah. You think
2: John um, Hancock had an ego and his wife had an ego? Yeah. The fact
0: that John Hancock was, was basically the richest man in the New England colonies um, at the time, and um, they, they had that little entitlement mentality also because he felt he was entitled to be commander-in-chief. And when John Adams rose and uh, nominated um, George Washington instead of John Hancock, John Adams was quite pleased to see the the uh, indignation and irritability on John Hancock's face.
2: Yeah. You know, we haven't done the Hancock.
0: No, no, we haven't. Listen, I'm going to have to put that on my list. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to just tell the story of Madame Hancock.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now, do you, you said you couldn't find anything on the cabinet ladies that much. No, it's it's a title for, and it started uh, in this time, uh, the cabinet ladies at this time were basically the wives of the cabinet members, those appointed, you know, either congressmen or the delegates or, you know, whatever. They were the wives of the men that, you know, were in politics, so... I mean it it, it was uh, I was reading about they they had in the archives.gov they have photos of uh Grove, Grover Cleveland's wife with her cabinet ladies and what they did was they would get together every so often with the first lady and this is after of course we became the United States and and we had presidents and first ladies um uh, some first ladies would gather the cabinet ladies and they would they would um uh, you know do uh, good things socially you know they were they would do things to help uh the social aspect of of the country
2: oh you mean they wouldn't make war
0: no no that's amazing isn't it uh, yeah they didn't do that no no they 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 you know helped um charitable causes and and uh to get the word out on things and yeah. No, they left they left the legislative legislating to the Congress. Which unfortunately they don't realize that's part of their job anymore. Unless it can make them money.
1: Okay,
2: so you have the end of Roger Shermiston, and we also gonna say what happened to Rebecca.
0: Um, Okay, so, let's see. Um, Okay, Sherman joined the fight for ratification of the new Constitution in Connecticut, enlisting support in a series of open letters to the citizens in the New Haven Gazette entitled, To the People of Connecticut from a Countryman. He stepped down as a justice of Connecticut Superior Court. That's what he was. Yeah, he he was a justice to serve as a representative in the first United States Congress in 1789. Okay, he was born in 1721. You do the math. There he advocated measures popular in New England, imposition of tariffs to protect local manufacturers, assumption of state debts by the federal government, and sale of western lands to finance the national debt. In 1791, he assumed fellow signer William Samuel Johnson's seat in the U.S. Senate, where he served until his death. Roger Sherman died of typhoid fever at his home on July 23, 1793, at the age of 72. He was still the mayor of New Haven and a member of the United States Senate at the time of his death.
1: Good Lord.
0: I know. No. Okay, here they they have his resume here. And this is amazing. The self-educated frontier farmer, shoemaker, surveyor, lawyer, jurist, merchant, and landowner, a member of the committees that drafted the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, chairman of the committee, whose Connecticut compromise created the bicameral two-house structure of the United States Congress, federalist pamphleteer in the ratification struggle, U.S. senator, and a founding father of the United States, of America, his lovely wife, his wonderful wife, also died in 1793. Oh, wait, she, she couldn't live without him. She's probably just tired as he was. <laughs> Aww. And was, I didn't know that. Yeah, she she died the same year he did.
2: Good Lord, and she was 20 years old, old younger than him.
0: Yeah. Well, he died of typhoid fever. Um, it doesn't say.
2: Whether she had it or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it might not be known. Um,
2: right. Uh, yeah, because she was still very young.
0: Yeah, let me see if, if it says in the this other one.
2: Um, I, I'm okay. going to read something about her, too, while you look, okay? Okay. Okay. Okay, Rebecca Prescott Sherman became the mother of eight children this is a correction I, uh, she one died so they only had 14 not 15. all but one of whom arrived at the age of maturity meaning that one died so they had 14 instead of 15 i have to correct that and their names were as follows rebecca elizabeth roger mehitable M- M- wow oliver martha and sarah of these seven children one daughter became the mother of united states senator poor another the mother of roger sherman baldwin governor of connecticut and United States Senator, still still another, the mother of the Honorable William M. Everett. These were but a few of the many eminent descendants of this illustrious woman. I thought that was great.
1: Mm. Um,
0: Most of the time, Rebecca carries carried character. It doesn't say what she died of. I can't find it in in the stuff I have on her. Um, Right.
2: Well, that's happened before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean they might it just might not be uh documented. Right. Um, but uh it uh Yeah, she 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 I think she just didn't want to live without him.
2: That is very that is very unusual for them to die the same year.
0: I know. Sorry,
2: I, I I don't think we've done anyone who that that's happened. I don't think we've highlighted any woman that that was the case. They either went before the husbands or after the husbands, mostly after. That's really unusual. Yeah. There's a a,
0: a book I um that is uh there's a
2: what would the um Oh no, somebody's writing, they think they know what the founders would think, really?
0: No, this is,
2: um,
0: this is, I like the author, this is basically, um, what's his name, I can't think of his name, Um, James D. Best, and it's his, basically his, uh, you know, an offshoot of his website, he's an author, and he wrote Tempest at Dawn, and if you get a chance to read that, Um, it's an excellent, you know, kind of a historical fictitious work of the Constitutional Convention, Convention. and, you know, it's like a novel, but James D. Best really did his homework, and when he has, you know, someone saying something, He's gone to you know original documents to try to find out if if that is something i mean it, it's just so well done and it's enjoyable and it has a lot about roger sherman in it and um that was how i was uh i was really um introduced to roger sherman uh it, you know he, he's uh he what his his um um, positions were and what what his uh, what he gave to this country, because, you know, you didn't hear much about him, uh, and you certainly didn't hear anything about his wife, so...
2: Well, do you want to read that essay of the... you had brought up the essay you had of the um, Forgotten Founder. Does it have anything relative in that? And also... Before the end of the show, I want to read the rest of the Connecticut uh, delegates and their wives because we're going to only do one a month from one, you know, it's, we, it'll change, but right now I just want to do pick one funder well, of the Declaration from yeah. each colony, and then...
0: This isn't very long, and...
2: Okay. Well, we got a half an hour.
0: Yeah. Okay, so uh, he goes, it, and there's, it starts with a quote from Roger Sherman. The question is, not what rights naturally belong to man, but how they may be most equally and effectively guarded in society. I mean, he's my man right there. You know, (laughs) I would elect you president. It says, sculptors haven't chiseled a lot of marble to honor Roger Sherman, yet he was one of the most important founding fathers. He was the only founder to sign all major documents of the era, And he was on the final committees for the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. At the Constitutional Convention, Sherman proposed and engineered approval of the Great Compromise, which gave each state two senators. And it talks about what we talked about. Um, he, He was a small businessman who had once owned two general stores, but he became impoverished because he invested his life savings in Connecticut bonds to support the revolution. Well, we know how that worked out. Throughout his life, he was a major benefactor of Yale. Um, yeah, okay. So what did, the contemporaries, what did his contemporaries think of him? I think this is wonderful. Um, and as I said before, Thomas Jefferson said, this is Mr. Sherman of C- Connecticut, a man who has never said a foolish thing in his life. Can you imagine having Thomas Jefferson say that of you? I mean, oh, I've said many foolish things. John Adams calls him a best friend and one of the strongest pillars of the revolution. An opponent, opponent, opponent complained that he is cunning as the devil, and if you attack him, you ought to know him well. He is not easily managed. But if, you suspects you are trying, but if he suspects you are trying to take him in, you may as well catch a eel by the tail. William Pierce, in his constitutional notes, wrote, He deserves infinite praise. No man has a better heart nor a clearer head. If he cannot embellish, he can furnish thoughts that are wise and useful. He is an able politician and extremely artful in accomplishing any particular object. It is remarked that he seldom fails. Fisher Ames, a fellow congressman, said, If I am absent during the discussion of a subject and consequently know not on which side to vote, I always look at Roger Sherman. For I am sure if I vote with him, I shall vote right. Patrick Henry said he was one of the greatest statesmen he had, he'd he ever known. And George Washington always visited his home when he was in New Haven. If his contemporaries thought so highly of Roger Sherman, why do we hear so little about him today? Part of the reason would be his age. At the Constitutional Convention, he was 66 and died before Washington finished his first term. We tend to forget our history between winning independence and Washington's inaugural. He was also a terse and eloquent speaker, leaving few memorable quotes. There are a few gems, however, like, when you are in the minority, talk. When you are in the majority, vote. Oh, God, we should send that to the Republicans. Roger Sherman may also be ignored because he was a devout Christian and insisted on constitutional protection of states' rights two subjects highly unpopular with many historians. Most of the smart set find it preposterous that the states should check national power. They believe most of the bad things that have happened in our domestic history were done by the states and the national government must exert heavy control over the states for the good of the people. As a result, they have diminished the protection of states' rights that Sherman and his fellow delegates built into our constitutional system. This is a huge miscalculation. The states didn't oppress people or suppress their rights. Government did, and there have been abuses at every level of government. The founders understood that government is power and power corrupts. They wanted the federal government to check abuses at the state level, but they equally wanted the states to check runaway national power. In his day, Roger Sherman was called the old Puritan. He was outspoken about his faith. He said, I believe that there is only one only living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Many today today, today, would dismiss this as not only quaint, but possibly offensive to those of other faiths and downright insulting to nonbelievers. To them, this is not the kind of example we want to put in front of our children. Better we ignore this unabashed Christian. Roger Sherman was certainly unembarrassed by his faith, but nobody in his time thought that was unusual. If he returned today, he would be appalled at the machinations we go through to create religiously sterile public areas. When he saw our denuded states and unbridled power at the national level, he would probably say, I told you so. Roger Sherman was an omnipresent patriot during our founder. He was essential to the revolution, the constitutional convention, and the Bill of Rights. He was revered by his contemporaries, yet we have forgotten about him today. We're in trouble because we're ignorant about the founding principles. To restore our republic, we need first need to restore the founding fathers to the rightful place of honor. Now you can see why I love this author. He is just, and, and that is so true what he says. This is where we've, we've allowed it to go. I know.
2: I know we yeah. have.
0: That's James. I'm just
2: afraid we can't. You know, I'm just afraid we can't. You know, you and I are trying by this, this show to educate people. Uh, I always tell people on this if they hear the uh, recordings, or if they're they're not, there's nobody in the chat room, so I don't know live. But um, we're trying to do this through education, not bloody revolution.
1: Yeah. And
2: I always say that another tool they can use to combat these communists. And they are communists. There's nothing about these liberals that has our liberty. I refuse to call them liberals anymore. I'll call them libtards, but I'm not calling them liberals because there's nothing about them.
0: Look up um, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks.
2: That's what they they're, are. They're progressives and they're communists, and that's just the bottom line. Infiltrated, and the elites are the Bolsheviks. Part, and they've infiltrated every single solitary part of our culture and our body politics. Yes papers have, so I just get discouraged because I know you and I through history are trying to steer this boat around, and my show, I do a lot of history on too, the uncooperative radio show, and Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, go there, download from episode one, it is just the facts about the Constitutional Convention, nothing else from Madison's notes, but it is power because knowledge is power. Yes. Unfortunately, with the way that this culture is, Deb, I don't think we can turn this around. That's my fear. Well,
0: well, now we have to remember Sam Adams. I always bring up Sam Adams when people get discouraged, because he started speaking out about independence in the 1750s, especially after the French and Indian War when, the you know, Parliament was, and the King decided that they needed to refill the treasury purses with the colonists' money, and Sam Adams was was rather um, uh, well. He you know he saw it coming, and I mean he wasn't a good businessman. That's for sure. He failed at business, but he he knew which way the wind blew. He kept a watch. And in the, nine, in the 1750s, he was already talking about independence. And, of course, everybody else was going, oh, you know, Sam, you can't even bring that up. But he kept talking, and he kept going at it. And, you know, he had to wait 25 years um, at least before he saw the fruition uh, of his his thinking and his beliefs. So we didn't get here, you know, in the last three days. It's going to take some time to undo this. But if we keep at it, as did Sam Adams and other founding fathers, um, Dr. Warren, you know, James Otis, and uh, a few of the, you know, the earlier ones, Um, some of them it took a little time to come on board, but they did. But there were the, there were earlier ones. And if you read about those people, um, the early, early patriots, uh, and, and you read why they fought as they did, you know, you'll understand it better. And that's why we do history, because it's so important to know where we came from and why. Not just that we did. But why? And the thing is, is if you know the why, you can watch C-SPAN and the Senate and the House and these these muling politicians spouting this unconstitutional, un-American drivel that they do and realize they don't have a clue. And then you can write to them And educate them. You know, I think everybody should um, take this quote from Roger Sherman and send it to your congressman and your senator and whoever else you can think of. You know, your local, your governor, uh, because they're selling us out and have been for quite a while. Now, the thing is, thank God for homeschooling and uh, for parents who are paying attention to their kids' education. Because these kids and a lot of the military, I have great faith in in the in our veterans um because they they understand what they know what the Constitution says, and they took an oath to defend it, as did our first responders. I don't ever want to leave them out because you know they're they're doing battle you know in battle here in in on our homeland. Um, But our military and these homeschooled kids who are getting taught the truth and uh, the graduates from, like, Hillsdale College, um, which is the only college I would send my kid to if I had a a kid that uh, needed to go to college at this time. um, We can turn this around. It's going to take a lot of work. Roger Sherman. Look at Roger Sherman. He was 40 you know, by the time he really was into politics, you can do it. But you have to know the why. And you have to know where your line in the sand is, which means you have to know your principles.
2: Okay, so I am going to read off some of the other signers of the Declaration of Independence, and the Women Behind the Signers for Connecticut. Okay. One of them is Samuel Huntington. He married Martha Devotion in 1761, the daughter of Ebenezer Devotion, the representative of Winham, Connecticut. They had no children together, but when Samuel's brother Joseph died, they adopted their nephew and niece, raising them as their own. Martha died in 1784. We actually had another lady that that happened to. They raised their, their nieces and nephews. Yep. And we just did Roger Sherman. He had two wives and 14 children. And let's see. Uh, see, now this one says she died in 1813. up. Huh. Rebecca. The
1: other
2: one says she died in 1793. Yes. That's bizarre, because this one says she died in 1813, which would make more sense. Well, unless she had typhoid fever, too. Okay, another signer from Connecticut was William Williams. He married Mary Trumbull Williams, the daughter of Brother Jonathan Trumbull, war governor of Connecticut. Together they had three children, and she lived 20 years past her husband, dying in Lebanon in the year 1831. And the last one is Oliver Wolcott, who married Laura Collins in January of 1759, the daughter of wealthy landowners in Guilford, Connecticut. Together they had five children, one of whom died in infancy. She was a capable woman and handled the affairs on the Wilcott farm with great wisdom when Oliver was away on business. She died in April of 1794 before Oliver became governor of Connecticut. And this is from constitutionfacts.com, which is where we're going to be getting Our ladies Once a Month to um,
1: highlight. Mm-hmm. Now,
2: this also shows that these men had, all had families and children. And they put bullseyes on the backs of all of these women when they find this document.
1: Yes. Michelle, so, let's
0: see. Oops, I just undid my my thingy. <laughs> oh, God. Um. Okay. Let's see. It says here about when she died. Okay. I am also looking up other things about her. See if I can... Yeah, okay, Sharon's... Um, let's see. it's his grandson? No, it doesn't say anything about when she died here. See? This is so sad. Maybe they don't really know. I uh-huh. know. And, and this happens a lot um, when we're researching uh, people we do have this problem where we'll get different in uh information uh sometimes. But you can you can look in more into it. Um the book is lives of the the signers of the Declaration of Independence and you can find it online. Um does not need book form. If you want to read more about them. And of course you can just uh go to colonialhall.com and click on uh click on the, the founders um, the the signers I mean of the uh, yeah colonialhall.com and it tells all the different uh wives and husbands that signed. And then you can find out what happened to them. The sacrifices they made, which I think we should talk about eventually, maybe at the end, uh, because it wasn't um, it wasn't very good for a lot of them.
2: Well, a lot of them, like you just said, with him, they a lot of them died in poverty because they were invested in the war.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or they were. Um, yeah, you know, some some houses were burned
2: down, and yeah, they were at war. So,
0: and and the funny thing is, is um, as Susan and I were talking before the show, <laughs> the founders and the signers of the the Congress basically, and the and the the other people that were involved in the revolution didn't think that the Declaration of Independence would be remembered. Well,
2: yeah, that's what she was saying, and I found that very curious. Yes, no, they, they
0: because they had put up other things to the public, other, uh, you know, they proposed different things, and the public didn't really, you know, raise a ruckus about it, and they, they really thought, during the time that they were, you know, coming up with a declaration and then signing it and everything and sending it out, um, that it was just, you know, a, a just another little paragraph that they had they had accomplished, you know, nothing really that great. <laughs> it's like little did they know. And I think I think James D. Best is right that, you know, if Roger Sherman were here, he'd go, I told you so, you know, Like, we wrote it all out for you people. And, you know, this is why a revolution really is not something I look forward to, a bloody revolution. We already did that. We already did, and they came out with the Constitution. And in my estimation, there are a few amendments that should be taken out that have been put in, like, in the 19th century. Uh, 20th century there were a few amendments that should never have been ratified and they could be taken out because we can do that um, but they gave us the blueprint they gave us the plans and the how to Now you have to do is find out the why and, and you can take on any politician and that comes along I mean, if people, if somebody got up and started talking constitutionally, yeah, the the, the Bolsheviks would be just in a snit and they'd just try to destroy them just like Bolsheviks are so good at and communists and socialists and whatever they want to call themselves. Um, They would try to destroy them because they don't believe in liberty. They don't believe in individuality. They certainly don't believe in a creator who gave man and women their rights. Yes, the government. To them, only the government can give you rights. And if you follow that line of thinking, if only the government can give you rights, the government can take them away. See, if God gives you rights, no government under heaven can take them away, except by point of gun, which is what they're trying to do. People, in case you haven't noticed, the Second Amendment is still under attack, even more so. And um, that's why it's so important
2: to know the law. Well, you know, you made a good point, not only the Revolutionary War, but we fought two civil wars in this country already. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's done, people. And this
2: is going to be a civil war.
0: This is a civil war. It already is. Uh, we're so divided right now. Um, and the left is trying to silence us. That's, you know, one of their weapons is to to silence you. And they do it so well because they've, you know, been practicing for over a hundred years, um take away your guns, take away your speech. What have you got left
1: <laughs>
0: You're really scrambled.. <laughs> Yeah, you're your the sound is uh like you're under a hundred feet of
2: water.
1: I haven't moved. I'm in the sense of the sound. Oh
0: yeah, no. It it's it's just changed terribly. Oh dear. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, you sound like you sound like you're in a tunnel underwater. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand a word you're saying.
2: Wow. Okay, is that better?
1: Oh,
0: there you are. Yes, much better. <laughs> it must
2: be my Bluetooth then.
0: Oh, it could be. Bluetooth do that. Yeah. Yes. Okay,
2: is. so. Yeah. Uh, and mine's a crappy one.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, she she's usually driving with her Bluetooth on, so it's you know hit or miss.
1: <sighs>
2: anyway, I want to talk about the Patriots Pub again once yes. uh, once again. Patriots Pub, Patriots Pub. Us. Just do a search for Patriots Pub. Us. It is a three-year-long uh, rendition of the Constitutional Convention by three self-taught. Constitution scholars, not these eggheads that are from the universities who swear that they're either constitutional scholars or constitutional lawyers and they wouldn't know the Constitution if it fit them. (laughs) And it was day by day, and it is found, it's from Madison's Note, and it is in the founder's own words about what the Constitution means and why they wrote it the way they did, and why they put stuff in that they did. And it also goes into, um, and a lot of people don't know this, the Bill of Rights was an afterthought, uh, which, by the way, is destroying us. Um, We don't need any more words. We need less words. So go to the PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us, and you can download all the episodes, listen on your MP3 player. It will give you the... um, ammunition you need to combat these communists. We have to get this country back. And especially on the 240th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, that's another reason why I did this show tonight like I did, Deb, because Monday is the 240-year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. We, we need to get, it, get this country back. And, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's not, because Europe is starting to get it. That socialism does not work. And the fact that the Brits want to call what they, when they exited the EU, EU, the Day of Independence, whenever you Google or talk to anybody about Independence Day, of course, the only one they think about is the United States. Well, now we have to think about two countries that are trying to, you know, another country trying to declare its independence. I, th- I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have this wonderful book that I found in a used bookstore It's called Documents of American History and it was put out um in 1934. I I love these old books because you know they uh they tell you, you know, before the the the, the Bolsheviks started revising everything. Um, but it's this wonderful book, and it has amazing speeches and writings of all the different people that um, that were involved in not only the founding, but the expansion of the United States. Uh, you know, everything from, um, let's see, starts with... The, let me find that page. Uh, the privileges and prerogatives granted co- to Columbus in, in 1492, and I mean it starts in 1492 and it goes all the well up to uh, you know it's written in. And uh, this is the third edition, which went into the 40s. It has um, it ends with President Roosevelt's broadcast on the war with Japan in 41. So it, it's just if you can find this this book just to have as a resource it's excellent um you can read about the arguments and the debates and the proclamations and uh you know about the treaties and things that have happened that you aren't you know, you didn't get educated on and your kids certainly aren't getting educated on and uh find out, you know, how the country evolved and what was important and how things have changed and what you want to get back to. And, uh, you know, the war on women, only in your mind. Okay, so
2: we're almost at the end of the show. Uh, The next so on Monday, we have to decide what we're going to do, and we will let the folks know I'll post it somewhere because it's the 4th of July. Oh, it is, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the next one we are going to do is another Patriot woman. And like every show, I appreciate you being here, and Deb always takes us out. you got about five minutes. Okay. Well,
0: tonight um I shall take you out with thought. uh we're we're under duress in this country as so many of you know but we need not fear because we can take as much wisdom from the founding fathers as is available and there's so much out there and to put it to good use. And Meet with your representatives, state and federal, and, you know, get to know who's representing you. That's so important, right from your dog catcher on up, and and see what kind of character and principles they hold. Um, And again, as always, uh, we're still at war in Afghanistan and our guys and gals are definitely in dangerous places even more so now because <clears throat> of the terrible terrible foreign policy that we have under this administration and the dismantling of the, the military the military is in a in a world of hurt right now as are the vets so you know remind your your representatives and those that you elected um, or the ones that you didn't elect, you can still remind them that our military and vets are, you know, are um, in need of uh, home support and that we shouldn't forget them and uh, pray for those who are in dangerous places and and pray for their families waiting for them to come home safe and sound and uh, give a thought to the homeless vets. They, they, we shouldn't have homeless vets. That just upsets me so much. But um, you know, visit a VA, your local VA. Go visit the old guys in the VA and the young guys in the VA, and and just go in and say, "Hey, thank you." And, you know, is there anything you need? They are. They won't ask for themselves. They're really not those who do that. So, and as always is say goodnight Loki miss you so much god I'd love to have you here right now during all this (laughs) wouldn't it be wonderful to tune in to Loki and hear what he had to say but anyways people Loki is is basically who got us together so we we thank him even though he's not with us anymore we always thank him so we'll be back next week and uh, remember July 4th is Independence Day, and it's not just about hamburgers and hot dogs and fireworks. But enjoy those, too. So, good night, all. I'm so glad you could join us, and we'll see you next week, Monday night.